Hello. Welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Today is January the 27th, 4.59 p.m. We're one minute early today, and we are broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia Vancouver campus from unceded Musqueam territory. My name is Christine Kim, and in the studio we have our lovely co-host. Yeah, it's just me, Ashley Clark. Hello. We are going to be your show hosts for this afternoon. And on today's show, we will be having guests. Um, we will be having two guests, Leslie Telford and Jeremy Berkman. More about those two a little bit later on um, on our show today. But we've, we're also going to be having uh, we're, we're going to be featuring more fringe related promotions, fringe, including. Or uh, push, yeah. including uh, push interviews and a couple of show reviews, actually, by our own arts reporters. Ooh, so yeah. please do stay tuned till the very end of our episode. Um, and as we prepare for our, our first interview of the day, I wanted to let you listeners know about a really cool event happening in about a half hour from now, actually. Yeah, yeah, it's really local. the UBC Arts and Culture Night at the Museum of Anthropology. And this night will feature performances by UBC. UBC Clubs, The Blank Vinyl Project, Improv, and Slam from 6 to 8.30. Uh, doors open at f- 5.30, and it's only $4 admission. Yeah, so right. um, if you guys don't have time to make it to the actual event, there's actually going to be an after party at the Kerner's Pub. So please do check out uh, the Facebook uh, event, the event that's on Facebook, if you mm-hmm. want more details. Um, and you can actually, to get that information, you can go to our Facebook, which is The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, because we made a post about it. Or if you're following us on Twitter, we also have the information there. Um, and you can follow us on Twitter at, at CITR underscore Arts Report. Yeah. What a mouthful. <laughs> yes, it is a mouthful. Um, Ashley, do you have any more details about the um, UBC Arts and Culture Night here at the Museum of Anthropology? Well, I know for sure it's going to be a really fun uh, night because the local kind of um, entertainment scene is here. You have your UBC Improv, you have UBC Slam Poetry, you have Blank Vinyl. There's going to be live music, which is great. You're going to get to see improv shows and also get to have like a gander at the um, Slam Poetry that the creative UBC students have been working on. And again, this is the backdrop of the gorgeous Museum of Anthropology. If you haven't gone yet, I strongly suggest you do. We've interviewed some of the uh, curators of the museum here on the Arts Report just uh, a few months ago. And if you go in, it's stunning. They have some new displays out. They also have you know, the central pieces, which are always in kind of like a need for you to see again. Thank you very much, Ashley, for yeah. that. And I just want to do a quick um, introduction, I guess, to our very first guest. And like I said before, her name is Leslie Telford. She is a dance choreographer um, who was the recent winner of the 2015 Mayor's Arts Award for mm-hmm. an emerging dance artist. Uh, Leslie has worked with many esteemed choreographers, such as Jerry Killian, Paul Lightfoot, Ansel Leon, if any of those names ring a bell for you guys. And what she's here on our show to talk about today is the Dances for a Small Stage, uh, the Valentine's edition, Mm -hmm. which is going to be running from February the 11th to the 14th at the Anza Club. Um, So as we get prepared to hear more about Dances for a Small Stage, we're going to put on a couple PSAs and we'll be right back. Stay tuned.
Beppy Crispan presents Difficult music, harsh electronics, spoken word, cut up slash collage, and a general Crispan weirdness. Sunday, 7 to 9 a.m. at CITR 101.9 FM. Tune in Sundays from 9 till 10 p.m. for bootlegs and b-sides with your host, Doran, for the finest in soul, dubstep, ghetto funk, and electro. Hi there. Are you tired of listening to the same music day in and day out and want to try something a little different? Well then, how about listening to Asian music? Now, I don't mean it like... Open Gangnam Style! Nor like she bangs, she bangs. Oh baby, when she moves, she moves. I'm talking about a little more like And a little more like And also a little more like And definitely something like So tune in to Asian Wave 101 Playing you the best of Chinese and Korean pop Wednesdays from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. only. Welcome back, arts reporters. And as promised, on the line we have Leslie Telford. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Thank you very much for being on our show today. Um, first question, can you please tell us about uh, your role in Dances for a Small Stage, the Valentine's edition happening February 11th this year? Well, I'm going to choreograph a small piece. Well, I, it's actually already choreographed. I'm just working with new dancers on, on a small piece. Um, there, there will be a number. I, I don't actually know how many, but um, there will be a number of small works, mm-hmm. as, as the title suggests. Um, and, uh, yeah. Great. Can you tell me how this celebrated dance series, Dances for a Small Stage, has evolved over the many years? Maybe um, it would also be really great if you could give our listeners maybe even a short history of the production. Well, this is my first um, small stages I'm participating in. Um, I've only arrived in, um, in Canada. I've lived and worked in Europe for, for about 20 years, so for me this is the... I'm I'm new to this as well, but I know over the years um, Julianne has worked with a number of, um, of of well-known local artists, including Crystal Pite and um, and others. And I I know she's been trying to shift the format of what a regular performance might be, and give the public another form of 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 access that um, people are at. at in the answer theater, for example, um, people would be sitting at, at tables and able to have a drink and taking the formality out of a performance, and, and that has been her goal over the years. Right. Seeing as 
this is your first time at Dances for a Small Stage, how does this experience compare with um, your previous dance experience? I shared a little bit of a brief history on the esteemed choreographers you've worked with, like Jerry Killian, Paul Lightfoot, and Sol Leon. Tell me about how Dances for a Small Stage has compared with those kind of previous uh, dance experiences you've had. Well, it shifts the format. It's not the Paris Opera stage. It's not, you know, it it really brings it to a much more casual and direct uh, contact with the audience, um, and and hopefully people feel that they can um, that kind of gain a certain intimacy like this. They can understand the artist a little bit on a more personal level, and it's. It loses the. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, it, on a on a big formal stage, we don't. We and often when we do works like that, we don't often get to have the opportunity to have closer access. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more intimate. Yes. Mm-hmm. And for yourself, in what ways are you going to be um, embodying, I guess, the theme of Valentine's Day and all the romantic symbols associated with the celebratory day in your piece? Well, maybe I'm heading towards the anti-romantic. Oh, <laughs> um, tell us about that. Side of things. <laughs> um, the, the piece that I did was in, in, inspired by a poem of um, Simborska, and basically this couple that... Um, speaks to each other on very different wavelengths. <laughs> so the idea that um, proximity doesn't necessarily mean closeness. Mm. And so I'm, I think I'm taking the antithesis of the whole Valentine's Day <laughs> idea. Um, and so it's, it's what maybe we assume to be this day-to-day um, not necessarily love story, but the ideal couplehood hmm. that that maybe does not, as as close as they may be, do not necessarily see eye to eye. Mm-hmm. So right. that's I've, I think my mind might be a little bit of a contrast from some other <laughs> some other works. And when you were creating that piece, was that a conscious? conscious decision that you make or was it as you were creating that dance piece you're like you know what from previous experiences etc cetera, etc cetera, this mm. is kind of the piece that came out tell me about the process the creative process that created this anti-valentine's dance piece that you <laughs> well, this, this piece, I'm actually resetting a work that I did a few years ago in Holland really and yes so I did it for the Corso Theater in Holland and um and so it just felt like that was a good piece to put in this e- evening. I think sometimes, you know, we're we're over we're overdosed with all of the love stories of Valentine's Day, and sometimes a little bit of <laughs> of another take might be might be refreshing in that moment. Um, so, the, but the process how I came to the work was definitely through inspired by the poem, um, which is called Tower of Babel. I believe, and um, and it's like every question has a total opposite response. It's like the the two people have not heard each other, but 
but they're they're very close and in, and and in the ants it will work well because you can't help but <laughs> but be close in that space they're very close but really do not hear each other or or are not responding to each other each each person is in their own world even though they're side by side and i think it has a certain amount of reality and it it just developed this way as i said through expressing the the poem Mm -hmm. and is it often that you find yourself being inspired by specifically literary pieces of work Very often. That is my personal experience Mm. with choreography. Not that it always stems from a literary work, but I find it it suggests certain imagery that really helps me develop a piece. And uh, everyone has different sources, and I know um, often for a choreographer the source would be music. And not that it's... not that it's not music for me, but I find as a as the spark to get the ball rolling, I often turn to what's on my shelf, my library. <laughs> yes, and uh, and I find something that that has really spoken to me, and and work from there, right. and then go on and choose music that might be appropriate, and and develop the work with the dancers. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that kind of insight on how you create your dance pieces with us, um, oh, Leslie. You're welcome. Can you give our listeners details on how on when your show is and how we can find out more about the works that you are currently in the process of doing or in the future will be? Well, um, the performances are the. February 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th in the ANSA Theater. They are, it's an 8 o'clock show, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of interesting um, works on the program. I, um, uh, as far as my own works, well, that is, there, it's semi-sporadic, but I do have a web page, so it's always possible to check on my web page when I when I've updated everything. <laughs> um, but I do hope that um, that we get a good audience in, and and hopefully we can share mm-hmm. these uh, small pieces for small stages. Perfect. Thank you so much for being on our show, Julie. I mean, Leslie. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. So as you guys heard, that was um, Leslie Telford, one of the choreographers on the Dances for a Small Stage, the Valentine's edition. For any of you guys interested, please remember that it is running from the February from February 11th to the 14th at the Anza Club. We are going to be right back with another few short commercials. commercials. Please stay tuned. Um, our next guest will be Jeremy Berkman and more about him after the break. I am your host, Christine Kim, and quietly listening is Ashley Park. (laughs) You are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Rendez-vous de la Francophonie is an annual celebration that promotes the French language, heritage, and its numerous cultural expressions. It runs March 6th to 22nd in communities across Canada. 
La Fondation Canadienne pour le Dialogue des Cultures, in partnership with the National Camps and Community Radio Association, through the Community Radio Fund of Canada, and this station present the RBF series. To help celebrate Rendez-vous de la Francophonie, In 2016, 24 campus and community radio stations from across Canada produce a weekly show highlighting Rendez-vous de la Francophonie events and the importance of bilingualism and Francophone culture and history of Canada. For more information, check out www.ncra.ca slash rbf. Unquestionably one of the greatest and most influential British metal bands of all time, Cradle of Filth comes to Vancouver on February 24th. Presented by Union Events with special guests, Butcher Babies, and Naobo Viscares. Tickets are available at unionevents.com, ticketfly.com, and Scrape Records. Don't miss the raw and rambunctious savagery of Cradle of Filth on February 24th. Doors at 8 p.m. Tickets on sale now. Welcome back. You are listening to The Arts Report. My name is Christine Kim. And I'm Ashley Park. Our second guest on the show today is Jeremy Berkman. He is the UBC music lecturer here to talk about Downing's Phantom of the Opera. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Now, I'm going to give a quick couple of details about uh, the performance of Downing's Phantom of the Opera before we get started on our uh, interview so we can really emphasize and get people um, hyped up for this event. <laughs> <laughs> right, it is going to happen on February the 20th at 8 p.m. And the Vancouver Bat Choir will be performing the composer Andrew Downing's composition at the Orpheum with actually a screening of Rupert Julian's cult classic in the backdrop. So, Jeremy, please tell us about Downing's Phantom of the Opera and why it's such a notable piece. Well, it's a notable piece because it kind of mixes history and it also mixes the present. And, and so it takes a film that's, that came out in 1925 and could have been seen at the Orpheum in, 19, in the 1920s because the Orpheum was an old vaudeville, vaudeville theater. And it is one of those iconic films of, uh, that has influenced so much since, um, but it was silent. And, of course, at the time it would have been played, uh, would have been accompanied with some live music. Uh, and so what Andrew's done is he's created some live music which is from the present. And so it sort of mixes this time-traveling thing where, where you're sort of in today's musical world and you're in the 1920s for this film, and it's a beautiful print. It's just, I mean, when you see a, a, an early silent film on a gorgeous print on a huge screen in a theater like the Orpheum, and then you have Andrew's music kind of helping uh, create a, maybe a, a frame that's very relevant for today, it creates a very exciting and, and one-of-a-kind type of uh, listening and viewing experience. Right. I thought it was really interesting that you guys were going to couple the performance of the Vancouver Bach Choir with the screening. Would you say that this particular performance is more a, of a visual experience than a musical one? Um, no, hopefully they, we work incredibly well together. <laughs> I mean, it's really neat to have the, the choir as well as the instrumental ensemble there on stage, not only making music, but being visual itself. And then the film, which is, of course, visual. But I, I'm, I, I'm thinking that this is going to be something for the ears and the eyes and that they mm -hmm. work entirely together. 
So uh, I, I mean, that said, I have to say that one of those those comments that I, I had at one point was, "Do you go to see a concert or hear a concert?" Mm-hmm. And, and so, that's a very good question. You know, and I, and I think in this case, you definitely will go see the concert. <laughs> My question is. How did you guys uh, synchronize the uh, music to the film? Did you guys have it, have it playing like all the time during rehearsals? Like, what was it like? Well, this is actually our second time. We actually presented mm. this uh, three years ago. It was the first time that Andrew had written this music, and, and it was, I think, even commissioned by the Bach Choir to put together. And it was it was so successful that they they wanted to remount it. Um, but how it actually happened, to be totally honest, I'm I'm a trombone player, so I'm I'm a member of the band, mm-hmm. but I wasn't part of the producing. So I, I don't know what Andrew's actually his his practice is in terms of uh, creating the music that that goes with the film. Um, he actually is a part of a, a group that actually has created music for lots of silent films. And so this is sort of uh, uh, another venture for him. But, uh, but that said, we have music throughout the entire film. Mm-hmm. So um, it's definitely uh, it's meant to be your, your sort of, uh, what do they call it, the, um, um, the, the soundtrack for, <laughs> for, for a certain story. Now, I want to zero in on your experience um, being part of the band that will be performing at the Orpheum February 20th. How has that compared with your previous experiences in other um, groups, musical groups? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm very fortunate in Vancouver. Vancouver's a wonderful scene for uh, musicians because you're not pigeonholed into a certain type of music. And I've been very fortunate to play in with people who are expert in jazz, people who are expert in classical, and uh, kind of this, this particular group is an extraordinary group of individual musicians from uh, various, you know, expertise backgrounds, but, you know, in a sense, music is a pyramid in the very, very top. It doesn't really matter what genre you are, and these are outstanding uh, professional musicians. So, so the instrumentalist and Andrew is, is, a, is a phenomenal composer as well. So you put it all together. And the, the Bach Choir, led by, by Les, it's, it's quite an ensemble, and, and I'm just a little piece. I'm just going to play my trombone and <laughs> hope to do it as well as I possibly can to contribute like a little brick to the building. So that's, that's what we're doing. Now, this is a question kind of unrelated to uh, the event itself, but I am curious, in such a big uh, music ensemble, how important is it for every single individual to be on point? Because you are also a UBC music lecturer, and I'm sure you have the uh, academic and you know personal uh, work experience to touch on this uh, yeah, subject. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, mean, I, I do teach uh, students in, in the music department at UBC, and I, I should reiterate that it's only $15 for students <laughs> to come out to hear this thing and see this thing, so it's a great deal. Mm-hmm, um, definitely. It, it, it's a, it's a good it's a good uh, question because I think um, part of the whole musical professional musical myth is a sense of perfection, a sense of being on point, and I think one of the beauties of actual music making and real music making as opposed to sometimes the, the kind of polished recorded product that you hear, but the live music making is there are times when the point isn't exactly hit, <laughs> and it, it, those are the times which to me. As, as a player, as a listener, are the most exciting <laughs> because you're trying to figure out how are they going to get back on point, in a sense, if, that's the, if you want to use dance analogies. And so um, I think in this particular circumstance, the goal is to be on point 100% of the time, but the excitement is if you're on point 98% of the time and what happens in those 2%. I'm really glad that you brought that up because lately I have been contemplating the 
understanding that now with technology, we have computer systems that can read basically a sheet of notes and Mm -hmm. produce the sound of every single note exactly, taking into account, you know, the uh, little symbols of crescendo and forte. And I was thinking, where's, if, you know, our computers can make the sound perfectly, where does that leave our actual human um but do they have soul? But do they have soul? And yeah, and maybe it is the imperfections that do make a piece that extraordinary. Or, 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 and I think it's an interesting way to look at it. Is is there such a relevance as perfection? I mean, is there such a thing? Hmm. In the sense that, <clears throat> since I teach in the music department, what one thing I often have the kids do is try to write music. And if you compose music, you realize how absolutely imperfect notation is. So you'll, you'll be saying, okay, there's some crowd noise, or there's some, there's some noise at the radio station. How am I going to notate that so that someone else can recreate that noise in the radio station? And you realize pretty quickly, well, you can use some signs. There, there's, lots of, you know, there's a lot of words, lots of language that we can use, lots of symbols. But then when someone does it, that wasn't really the sound that I heard. And, and when you realize that there's a, there's a disconnect between your imagination and how you can notate your imagination, that's when you realize that there's no computer that could possibly replicate motivation or replicate an anticipation. What they can do is, is they can read the symbols absolutely perfectly. Hmm. Right. Does that make sense? Yes. I... It's great to have somebody so knowledgeable about this topic matter, being able to speak about it on our show. And I guess coming back to Downing's composition of Phantom of the Opera itself, it's quite common, even when I was kind of YouTubing up the uh, music for it, that it's mixed up with Phantom of the Opera, the actual movie soundtrack, <laughs> or the, the production soundtrack. And so I was wondering, for the target audience that you guys are anticipating and hoping for, do you expect that most people will uh, come into the production? It'll be kind of the musical elites who know uh, Andrew Downing and his Phantom of the Opera um, quite strongly, as opposed to those people who may have stumbled in thinking that it was going to be a production about, you know, uh, Christine. And (laughs) exactly, exactly. What's what's the the unmasking? I I, I don't know. You know, I I think in in the best of all worlds for me as, as an artist performing for audiences, you get a whole wide range of people who come to hear and see a show. And you'll get some people who come to the show because they really want to see this old film in a really good print, you know, regardless. That's the, that's the expectation. What Andrew does with it is, is either icing on the cake or, or it's a disaster <laughs> because the film has a certain purity to it. There are going to be other people who come because they're, they want to hear the Bach Choir do something interesting. And they want to hear them sing, and and they'll be either thrilled uh, with with the singing accompanied by the instrumentalists, or they'll think it's a disaster because there are these instruments in the way. And then there'll be others, other people who come because they know Andrew's work and they're intrigued. And there are a bunch of other people who will know the musical and will know the movie and will know the films and will know you know everything and and will will say, well, well, what is this? But you know, this sounds interesting, and and I just want to have an experience for a couple hours. Mm-hmm. And I think if if all those people come together with all their various expectations and anticipations and they share a couple hours of, a, of an amazing story and they like 
you know, different parts of it that they can share and they don't like parts of it that they can share, what they'll have is they'll have two hours that they'll, they'll be really thrilled to have had in their life and, and would, would have been able to tell people who didn't go, yeah, you, you missed something interesting. <laughs> No matter who you are, it's going to be a win-win situation from it's what I can hear. It's going to be a win-win, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but, I mean, yeah. you always got to think about live events is what else could you be doing? You know, and, and I think this is one of those circumstances where when you, when you think about what am I going to do on, on the 20th of February in the evening, um, this has got to be one of the best things you can possibly do with your time on that evening. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for being on our show and for all of your comments today. Before we end off our interview, why don't we uh, remind our listeners just one more time again the details of the event. Okay. Well, this is a, a film, a, a reshooting, a re... Um, I don't know what you call it. A, 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 we're, we're showing the film, Phantom of the Opera, February 20 at 8 p.m. at the Grand Orpheum Theater. And it's a 90-year-old film, and it's being part of a celebration for a uh, Bach choir that's 85 years old, which means that they, they started singing five years after this film came out. Andrew Downing, who's a spectacular bassist and composer uh, from Canada, has written some music that we will be playing, uh, the contemporary music, uh, that highlights what happens in the film. And uh, it'll be an exciting evening. And $15 student tickets for UBC kids. <laughs> and actually, in light of your presence on today's show, the Arts Report will be giving away a pair of tickets to this event oh my God. live. So thank you very much, Jeremy, for being yeah. on our show. And best, yes, and uh, best of luck with the performance. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As I mentioned just giveaway. now, we are going to be doing what? a ticket giveaway. If you are listening right now and would like to claim these tickets, please dial in at 604-822-822. 2487. That is 604-822-2487. To give you time to do this, we are going to be playing a composition by Andrew Downing himself that is not from his Phantom of the Opera piece, but is still one that has an extremely similar feel. Uh, extremely similar feel. Mm -hmm. So here we go.
Welcome back. Welcome back. And for the next part of our, your our show today, we are going to actually be hearing a pre-recorded interview done by Ashley Park herself. So oh, Ashley yes. Park, please introduce this interview to us. Oh, to introduce the interview. Well, uh, in my interview, I interview Gabriel Darmu. He is one of the performers I'll be coming to the 2016 Vancouver International Push Festival. His show is called Anthropologies Imaginaires, and we talk a little about what it means to kind of create a culture, what it means to sincerely kind of portray that culture, as well as other kind of musical things. Oh, by the way, I promise I would say this too. Spoiler warning for his show. Um, it is kind of like a little bit of a hush-hush on what he kind of does, but at the same time, if it's a great incentive, go out and see it. It's going to be amazing. Thank you, Ashley, everybody. Please uh, do stay tuned to this interview that is coming your way. You are listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, hosted by your very own Christine Kim and Ashley Park. We're speaking with Gabriel Darmu from Anthropology Imaginaires. They're going to come to the Push Festival on February 1st to the 2nd at the Fox Cabaret. So welcome to the Arts Report, Gabriel. Thank you, Ashley. Well, Gabriel, so one thing I wanted to ask you just straight away is Push Festival. How did you get involved with it? Um, actually, I invented a co-production between Push Festival and Music on Main. I worked as a composer and musician. I had been involved with Music on Main. And artistic director uh, David Pace saw my piece in Halifax when I did it a year ago, and he wanted to program it. And the fact that it's it's kind of live art and performative, they usually have collaboration with Push Festival, and it, they thought that because of the kind of music background to it and the fact that it's performative, it would be a, a great piece for the co-production that they usually have with Push Festival. What we kind of see from a trailer is you guys do a lot of music mixing cultures. Well, um, in my project, it's very inspired by different traditional ways of singing um, mm -hmm. that could exist in different cultures. I'm very sensitive to the fact that there's no real one version of how to sing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And imaginary part comes from basically wanting to address lots of issues about our post-colonial reality that we have and also all these issues around cultural appropriation are things that I find super interesting. But to address them like in a more ethical way, I didn't want to set it in the real world. So mm -hmm. I wanted to invent situations that could create parallels to what might exist or exist either in the present or in the past. Because the types of things I'm talking about in the piece are, they exist now, they've always been around, <laughs> this kind of assimilation of peoples, and that's mm -hmm. kind of a, a big theme of it. So yeah, I'm, I have invented uh, 11 populations in the way that they would sing, through song and music, but also through rit ritual. In creating these cultures, did you look to certain kind of areas of the world for inspiration, or are they all just kind of like, I just made this up? on spot, no inspiration taken from any sort of culture? Um, yeah, that's a good question. There is an influence of different real techniques or real styles of singing mm -hmm. in some of the parts due to some of the background that I have in, in studying certain forms of music. I, I've been to India and studied Indian music, so that kind of informs 
one of the um, pieces, also uh, influence of yodeling, which mm -hmm. is a technique that's not just in Switzerland, but in, in, it exists in different uh, cultures. It exists in Africa and lots of other places, and in pop music, too. <laughs> and awesome. uh, overtone singing and all that. I pick from things that exist, but they're never um, just that. So there's always different layers that would contradict that that's actually where I took it from. So if I have an Indian-style voice, for the, the first part, I add some techniques that are more inspired by improvised music or avant-garde. That kind of contradicts that's what I'm presenting. And you studied music at the Conservatoire de Musique de Montreal, right? Yeah. I probably butchered the French super bad. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> so while you were studying there, were you ever thinking of taking your music down this sort of path? That's a really good question because that was already... 10 years ago that I finished. Mm -hmm. um, so I've had time to change a lot. And some of the things that I've been doing since my trip to India and my interest in um, ethnomusicology, so the, the music you would find in different cultures, that came mm -hmm. later after my studies. But when I was studying there, I was more focused on the new music from a Western classical scene. But I had always been interested in going away and seeing how other cultures thought of music, always knew that there wasn't just that. I, I don't think that if you interview ten year, me 10 years ago <laughs> and you say, like, hey, you did, you're going to do this, it wouldn't come as a surprise, but mm -hmm. um, I don't think I would have been able to formulate it in the way I, I have uh, today. I understand, I understand. So your travels kind of help create a different universe in itself of these like eclectic musical styles. Yeah, I've been very uh, studying of other types of music and just also listening to different types of music, especially vocal, <laughs> has been very informative for the piece. And in your kind of your culture creations, for you, what was kind of like the main purpose you wanted listeners and viewers as well to glean from them? What I would want them to take away from the piece uh, mm -hmm. is what you're asking? Yeah, I think that um, what I've mentioned a bit uh, at the beginning is that, that putting forward how the human voice has lots of possibilities and lots of ways it can be. We're kind of used to hearing the same kind of singing. Well, I mean, except if you really go out and search for it, if, mm -hmm. if that's an interest of yours. But if you're kind of passive in that, <laughs> that you just take what's kind of coming on the radio, or even in, in classical music, we have lots of compositions, but the type of voice, the color of voice, is usually very normative in a way. And I just want to question that again, and, and that kind of acknowledgement of the fact that there's a wide range of vocal techniques or vocal possibilities or styles or aesthetics. It reminds us how different people across the world not only sing differently, but think differently mm -hmm. and act differently. Or, and it's kind of the broader picture of what I'm trying to do, but through a more narrow window of looking at the voice. One thing that strikes me about your uh, piece as a whole is that behind the singer, there's actually anthropologists and other humanities experts talking about kind of like the origin and meaning of these vocalizations that you're doing. Yeah, so these are also fictionalized, <laughs> fictive. <laughs> you know, not everyone coming to see the piece knows that from the get-go. So at first you kind of give them importance, assume that they have credibility as experts. But from what you've seen in the trailer, that's, that's what people would conclude from it. The piece has a few surprises in the way that it unravels, where I don't want to give too much away, but the credibility of whoever is we're seeing is questioned 
so we're also questioning who do we trust. Kind of telling us what culture is about. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. Do people know? When I give information about the piece to whoever is presenting it, the text does kind of mention that it's a mockumentary and that, you know, there's lots of clues and just the title is Imaginary Anthropology suggests mm -hmm. that we're away from reality. So there's lots of clues and I'm talking to you now and I'm, I'm being open about this. <laughs> but the truth is I can't control what people know when they come into the, the theater hall. Or I accept <laughs> the fact that some people might come not knowing anything about the piece, and that's usually a, a, a high percentage. And I find that lots of people have thought it was real. I was presenting things that were real, not necessarily that I was like a representative of these invented cultures, but that I was dealing with existing things. Mm -hmm. And the transformation of, of their perception of kind of realizing that it's fictional is is really interesting and I like that reaction so I don't like to um, necessarily be super clear about the fact that it's a mockumentary because I, I like to allow people that come in kind of without knowing to kind of go through that to have a more, more transformation a, yeah definitely and more of a receptive mind like oh I'm gonna see these new cultures that kind of thing and I wanted to ask a little bit about your collaborations with music on name you said you've worked with them before how does this performance differ from your previous works together the first time I'm doing something as a performer, the other collaboration we had was that uh, I had written a piece for New BC Collective, which is a chamber music trio, and the singer Carla Hutenen. And my role was that of a composer. And I went there and attended the premiere and all that, but I wasn't on stage. So this is the first time that I'll be performing. And it looks like to be a really, really intriguing show. When I first saw this, I was like, well, this looks really, really cool. Then, then I realized, what? It is created? What? <laughs> then I got way more excited. I've been telling everyone about this to actually go see the show. Again, it is at the Fox Cabaret, February 1st to the 2nd and at 8 p.m. It looks to be very, very spectacular. One last question before we have to say goodbye is, one thing I want to ask you is actually about your process in creating this. I know that you take inspiration from different cultures, and sometimes you just create them yourself, but how long does it really take to create a culture? Well, that's a good question. It takes, I mean, it doesn't always take long because I go through 11 populations in 40 minutes, so it's not like I'm, I need to present all aspects uh, of a culture. Of it would be just one isolated kind of ritual or that hints to other things. And But, I mean, some of them have been quite fast you know, to find the idea or the seed from which to grow something. What's longer is how to distinguish them one from another mm -hmm. so that you really know that, oh, I'm singing this way, but this other population wouldn't sing that way. They'd sing this way. And to really think of how you characterize them with the voice and also the people on screen that you've mentioned, I also wrote what they said, and that kind of is inspired by old school anthropology description. So that helps also to uh, describe them. To have a favorite culture, or are they kind of like you equally love all your children, sort of thing? Yeah, I, I, I like all of them <laughs> a lot. And that's something like about the piece. I want it to seem really like when I'm doing it that I'm part of that culture. And so even all the, I spoke about the voice, but it's also the, the body language. Sometimes it's more 
aloof as if you it would hint to just being uh, you know not a formal kind of concert setting uh, music it would be maybe more folky or you could accompany uh, domestic chores or something like that and some of them are more theatrical or dance-like so all, all of that is I want to do but I want to do it as if I'm enjoying doing it as if I'm the, the people that I'm representing they do this with sincerity and authenticity of course and from again what I what I see it looks really really amazing it is so creative and also such a great intellectual discussion and I'm super happy that you actually brought it here to Vancouver for the Push Festival. I'm I'm really glad that, that you're enthusiastic, and I hope that uh, the audiences will, will be as, as much as you are. <laughs> well, I hope so. Well, again, dear listeners, we are with Gabriel Darmu. He is performing Anthropologie Imaginaires, February 1st to the 2nd at the Fox Cabaret. Thank you so much for joining the UBC Arts Report today, Gabriel. Thank you. Again, everybody, go watch the show. And go watch the show. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ashley, for that interview. No, he was he was just absolutely lovely to talk to. That is so good to hear because <laughs> oftentimes doing interviews is not an easy thing. You would normally think you just ask a question and see what other people have to say about it, which is true. But the responses <laughs> that you get really depends on the person you gotta and be the on mood. Your feet. You got to be on your feet. You do. But also prepared. We have one more new addition to the uh, – host host dynamic here Ooh, at the show yes. we have the arts reporter jake howdy i'm jake clark in the house and <laughs> you are here to talk about a production that both you and i christine kim went to go see this past week and i ashley park will listen quietly <laughs> boom that was the, that's the name of the show and this is a show by a fellow named rick miller who is uh, a he's a he's a fellow from quebec and he's he's how best to describe him? Would you, would you say he could be described? He's a, he's a performer, writer, singer. Impressionist? Yes, very talented impressionist. Very talented. And uh, I'd actually seen the show before in my hometown, London, Ontario, because he came through there. And this is about – this was almost, this was almost exactly a year ago. And it was just – at the time, like, I thought this was an awesome show, but a heckler ruined it for me oh, at the time. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah, who actually kind of – started hurling racial epithets uh, for some reason at, oh, in, during the second half of the show, and that was really disturbing. And This time was better, though, right? Yes, there were, there were, there were no racial epithets here, and it was actually – it was a great space. It's, it, was, it was a great crowd because it was, um, it was something to it. It's, it is Rick Miller is um, – the, the show Boom is based around the baby boomers, and it's this, mm-hmm. t- this series of explosions almost is something that he's talking about. And he narrates it himself, as well as through three impressions. And uh, these impressions are masterfully done. They're done. You see them on video beforehand. Okay. They are his mother. All right. Um, this uh, black bluesman from Chicago. Okay. And an Austrian immigrant. Was who- there... Was there any like reason why he chose them? Um, they all relate to the the story ah. of um, of, his, of his birth. He was born. He was conceived uh, on the night of the moon landing, apparently, hmm. I believe, uh, and in 1969. And that's where it ends. It go- starts in 1945 and ends in 1969. Mm-hmm. The start and end of the baby boom. And in the end, it, it's kind of it's kind of a thing about uh, knowing where you came from to see where you're going to be going. And he kind of plays with that concept a bit. And he does a lot of work in this. There's a lot of thought that's gone into this and a lot of very contemporaneous thought, which is very interesting because, like, he compares the Truman Doctrine to the Bush Doctrine. Mm-hmm. He makes um, 
a lot of topical and regional jokes. Like he makes a joke about the auto industry being the reason Surrey exists. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, fair enough, right? Okay. Right? And there's are you from Surrey, by the way? No. Right? Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. It's like I remember once. It's like before we I was doing work on the idiot a little bit ago, and I was like, "Any Russians here?" It's like, "No." Okay, let's talk about this book. <laughs> it was okay. I was, but I was, back to but back to boom. Sorry, I got boom. sidetracked there. Um, he did not. All of his work was spot on. Like there were no nothing seemed like a tangent. Everything elaborated into this one picture mm-hmm. perfectly, and there was so much material. He was doing impressions of ads of um of slogans of these people's stories coalescing and. Also of musicians, he did. I think almost. What was it? A song from each year, just about at least a snippet yes. of a song from yes. each year. He, by my mm-hmm. count, he went well over doing more than twenty-five artist impressions. Mm-hmm. Wow! And it went from Hank Williams to uh, to that song, "Eve of Destruction," only protest song to be a number one hit. His mm-hmm. favorite from the show, which is what I remember when there was a Q and A after the show. Both when I saw it, both times I've seen it, and the mm-hmm. first time in London, he said that was his favorite song. But the last song was actually kind of affecting. What was it? Well, can you guess? Uh, guys, don't know. Okay, no, I'll, I'll, okay, I won't put you on the spot. Wait, my 1960, is it the Beatles? 69? Yeah, no, it's not the Beatles. Wait, is it the Beatles? Wait, it's not the Beatles. No, it's not the Beatles. Dang it. Okay. He did well, do the, the Beatles. Yeah, he did do the Beatles. He did the Beatles spectacularly well, too. But it was not the last song. Also, a great impression of John Lennon. But he, well, yeah. What like was he, it? Was, was, uh, this was Crown Control to Major Tom, you know? <gasps> Oh my David, god! David Bowie. Oh, cool! Yeah, and he did that both times. This wasn't it wasn't an addition, but mm-hmm. it was a very sad thing. Like it was it was it was kind of a sad ending to it because well, he's recently deceased. Yeah, and it's it's probably it's one of the mo- his most recognizable songs. It's certainly something that you don't associate with any other artist, mm-hmm. and it's the end of the show. And that's it. It, it kind of hit. It, people asked him, "Was that intentional?" And he's like, "No, that he said no. That was in the show uh, beforehand." But it would seem to be like. But it's very thematic. Yes, it was. It was because it was also because he's also talking about the space race too, mm-hmm. and that's what he uses uh, for the point where he points out his the night of his conception was also the night of the moon landing uh, in '69 and uh, the takeoff from um, of the jet and that when crowd controlled major Tom. It's, it's like it, it was it was quite a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there there were I mean there were other songs that he does well. Eve of Destruction, as I mentioned, was his favorite. He does um, Hank Williams. I personally enjoyed a lot because my grandfather was a huge fan of Hank Williams. Also, good impression of Perry Como. Uh-huh. Uh, because Perry Como, I think a lot of people forget that he was a very bombastic, that he could be a very yeah, bombastic yeah. performer. He was just almost catatonically low-key outside of that. Mm-hmm. And he, he nails that, the, the very the hand gestures, the almost operatic singing voice. And it's, it's just a really good collection of impressions. I couldn't think of a single problem. Also, um, Little Richard. Um, was it was it Little Richard who did uh, Tutti Frutti, Tutti Frutti, Oh Rudy, Tutti Frutti, Oh Rudy? Yeah, that's Little that's Little Richard. I thought it might have been Chuck <laughs> Berry for a second, but no, he does. And uh, Fats Domino, also mm-hmm. a really good impression. Just some, just some fantastic stuff uh, all around. What I really appreciated was that it was a historical retelling of the mm-hmm. events of. Mm-hmm the baby boomers period and it was a whole bunch of impressions it's just one man on the stage but there's a very distinct beginning middle and end Mm -hmm. there is a climax and there is this incredible way that at the very end all three main characters their stories align their stories Mm -hmm. have intersected and i'm i was curious as to know whether or not through this process he figured out how those three people um, were 
relationally related to each other um, or whether or not he always knew his mother had that kind of past. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love the way that in the production, at least, you're walking with him as he's discovering all these incredible things Mm -hmm. about the memories of these baby boomers Mm -hmm. and then how those memories actually become one giant memory and i yeah i was like that's and it shows you how that builds too with all these these influences like the like rock and roll Mm -hmm. television is is something he focuses on a lot and that's something we take for granted because we're well we're the we're digital natives we know how screens work so well that we take them for granted and he's he's illustrating how television impacted people Mm -hmm. and it's something that 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 was a perspective not even William Gibson gave me as as like as sheer perspective into the impact of technology that way. It was something, it, it it's just something amazing how he actually does that because you can you understand what he's doing, you understand the perspective therein, and the fact that he's able to understand that without having lived it himself is also very impressive. And he seems to have taken he's uh, he's uh, I talked with him after the show. Oh, that's great. He, he signed a program of mine actually. Uh-huh. And, he, and I, because I, I, I collect programs mm-hmm. for the shows, and he is probably, I actually can't think of a single performer right now who I respect more than Rick Miller, just for his sheer ability to do this on his own. Mm-hmm. Like, he does this and directs it himself. He films himself and then directs himself on the camera. And aside from, the, and he, he credits the lighting and sound crew, because he needs them. He needs them and the stage crew. But he's the only person on stage. Mm-hmm. He is doing this imme- Im- immense amount of work, and I... I cannot envision doing that. I like I can. It's, it's a, a, a feat that I cannot envision myself doing. It just takes so much conceptual understanding and so would, much skill. Would you guys say that his portrayal of the baby boomer age is that one that's kind of more of one that's kind of like tinged with nostalgia, or is it much more of a, a clear cut historical thing? Well, the way that he relives the mm-hmm. memories mm-hmm. of these three baby boomers he's interviewing yes it definitely has the sense of nostalgia because his ability to ability to empathize with the three people he's interviewing and take on their personalities does create um the viewpoint of the era of Mm -hmm. the late uh late 1900s through the eyes of these three individuals but it is important to point out that he does there's no point in which he kind of puts on rose-colored glasses like he does point out that there were there were definite problems with the generation gap between Mm -hmm. the greatest generation and baby boomers something which my father personally that's one thing i related to was the feud between um uh there's the relationship between his mother and her father was probably pretty similar to the relationship my father and uncles to their father who was like like rick miller's grand my grandfather uh, like rick miller's father was a very waspish middle-class Ontarian who who served in the Second World War. And that was um, the dominant culture at the time. And there were there was things being shaken up. Mm -hmm. That's another thing he says, the impression of change and reactions to change. Mm -hmm. Like there's um, change visuality. There's so many themes in this that I think it'd be almost impossible to analyze (laughs) uh, in in broad strokes because, again, it's so many things he manages to tie so perfectly. There's no theme that seems prevalent. Prevalent? Prevalent? I always mispronounce that. Uh, above above others mm-hmm. and but they're all equally significant they all convey some aspect of uh, of perspective like uh in the austrian immigrant rudy who's his father mm-hmm. um the, he there are there's this thing about visuality he worked in advertising uh does uh, like this um 
this performance, this attempt to stay optimistic. Uh, for his mother, there's self-discovery, there's progress. Um, for the bluesman, there's also a uh, there's also that in reflected through um, his his focus on the civil rights movement. Yes. One thing it does really well illustrates the Martin Luther King Malcolm X divide. He points out is um, which is also I think which is something I think that should probably be analyzed a bit. A uh, final question for the both of you. Uh, final question. It is basically, do you think it helped you guys connect to a past that you guys would never have any access to just because we live in this digital age? Well, for me, my parents didn't grow up in Canada or the United States for that matter. So mm -hmm. their experience of that time period is extremely different from what was explained um, by the three interviewees. However, at the same time, because I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, and have come across so many people like those three individuals and have shared the exact same experiences as those three individuals, I think it opened up my eyes to an entirely new... Kind of like a little subculture. New, new, yeah, a new subculture and a new viewpoint at looking at what's going around the world today. Yeah, and that there are comparisons to that in Boom. And for me, there was this sense because uh, one thing I really thought about what made me realize it is the music in Boom. I know these songs. A lot of them are some that I knew before. A lot of because the, there's some old country songs in there. My, Jake was singing along. I, I, really? I could, yeah. There, there were a few of them. The, mm -hmm. the song in the buffer actually uh, in between the acts was "Save the Last Dance" for me. But it was I think it was the Drifters, the Coasters, the Platters, the the, the Somethingers. They were an R and B group. It's a beautiful song. Um, and he didn't perform it. But there were these things because I, I I really liked that dynamics. That was the first music I, I kind of I sought out on my own terms because I um. Up until very recently, maybe maybe not even now, actually. I don't know if I can evaluate that. I n did not spend a lot of time with people my own age, comparatively. <laughs> I spent a lot of time with my parents, who are both baby boomers. And um, I don't, I don't so regret. You had that connection already. Yeah, th there was that. And that's something that I kind of I got a lot of this context. Uh, and this is something I noticed when I saw it in London, Ontario, with my high school friends, was I... I got a lot of this context, but I didn't. F I didn't feel proud about it. It's not like I know this. It's like I know this. Okay, um, should I? Like it, it, it's. It's not. It. It didn't strike me as odd until I realized how much of that I. I took for granted and how much of it that um, wasn't um, a universality. Mm -hmm. Like um, Hank Williams, "My Cheating Heart" in it is a song. Probably the probably the first song about adultery ever to hit the airwaves. I pretty well know the lyrics to that song because Hank Williams, like me, cannot sing uh, <laughs> and could not sing. I I'm sorry. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, Mr. Williams. He was a brilliant, he's a brilliant country musician, though. And that's that's one song that I, I realized had a lot of impact for me, but probably holds no meaning whatsoever for a lot of people, for a lot of baby boomers, probably for actually for probably most people north of the Mason-Dixon. It's, it's something that uh, that kind of reminded me of that and that context to me was always interesting and I actually thought about that a lot more afterwards and actually after I saw the show the first time I uh I kind of actually felt closer to my peers because it show it, sh it was that kind of shared context mm -hmm. and oh, kind of looking up from there and that's how I got where I am today that was very personal digression and I apologize if that was a little long and winding road but there's there are many reasons why I love this show and that is one of them it's this media and this culture that I feel maybe an affinity for I'm not sure if I if I do. I don't have any nostalgia for that age. I wasn't there. I probably would get. I would probably die if I wasn't around right now. Somebody. It's it's that. It's it's that. It's what they say. You know, now is probably the best time to live. If you're looking overall. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I'm, I'm a straight white guy. I'm the person to whom time travel is a benefit. Uh, who time travel backwards actually is not going to put me in a worse situation uh-huh. on the cultural scale of things, but I still believe that it's now is probably the best time to be alive relatively because it's still very gradual progress. And that's another thing that Boom points out very well is a change in expectations, mm-hmm. the generational change in expectations between the greatest generation and the baby boomers, uh, between well, uh, between the baby boomers and his generation somewhat. He doesn't really touch on that, but he does. He did say in the Q&A afterwards that that was part of the reason he did that is so that he could understand where he came from and so that his daughters um, possibly can understand that, too, to, can understand where they're coming from, you know, to understand your origins. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that, Jake, um, especially that last part about understanding that right now might be the best time to live, um, even from your perspective, being a straight white guy. And uh-huh, yeah. I'm glad that you did because that's quite insightful. Um and if you guys would like to hear more insightful reviews, we actually have one more review coming up on our program before we end off um, our episode for today. But before we do, I'm going to be playing one quick commercial and uh, play, I guess, the review by a very new arts reporter to our show. His name is Brent Holmes. You'll probably be hearing more from Brent in the upcoming weeks. And this is his debut piece. So take a listen. And we'll be right back. My name is David Scott. I play wide receiver for the University of British Columbia football team, and I'm here to discuss the Be More Than a Bystander program. Myself and a few other players were lucky enough to work alongside the BC Lions and EVA, the Ending Violence Association, to support this cause. The main goal of the Be More Than a Bystander initiative is to increase awareness of domestic violence against women. For more information on the cause, please visit endingviolence.org. Miss are live at the University of British Columbia. You just heard the sound of theatergoers coming out of the opening night performance of UBC Theatre's Eurydice. What they're singing is the music of Orpheus, the legendary musician who could make the stones weep. Master of Fine Arts candidate Kelty Forthyth directs this adaptation of the myth written by American playwright Sarah Rolfe. Kelsey Renshaw and Daniel Corrali bring Eurydice and Orpheus to life. Pun intended. The play opened on Thursday, January 21st, and runs to Saturday, February 6th at the Frederick Wood Theater. Eurydice is an adaptation of the classic Greek myth about a man who tries to rescue his dead lover from the underworld. In the myth, Orpheus convinces Persephone and Hades to allow him to take Eurydice back with him, with one catch. He must walk out of the underworld without looking back at her. Being a Greek myth at the last moment, he looks back and she returns to the dead. One hopes you don't need a spoiler alert for a myth over a thousand years old. Will's play reimagines the myth, making Eurydice the main character and giving her a little more agency. In this version, Eurydice can't remember who she is. Her father, played by Michael Farah, teaches her, while Orpheus seeks a way into the underworld. Orpheus and Eurydice's walk becomes a choice from Eurydice between her father and her husband. Granted a choice between two men, but a choice nonetheless. The play does not end there, though. For mythology buffs who know what happened to Orpheus afterwards, there are a few more gut-punching moments to come. Read up on your Ovid before going in, and this play gets even more tragic. The performances are out of this world. Renshaw mazes as Eurydice, and Kurali's lovesick Orpheus is adorably naive. 
They are manic pixie dream people. Renshaw particularly has the air of Zoe Kazan and Ruby Sparks as Zoe Deschanel in 500 Days of Summer. Farrah also gives a touching performance as Eurysides' father. The sets and music also wow. Sound designer Jessica Lay's music features a percussive beat that gives the underworld a terrifying aesthetic. Credit also goes to Hypo Lang's set design. A scene where Eurydice's father weaves a room from her out of string is probably one of the play's most beautiful moments. This play is not flawless. Will's omission of Persephone from the retelling robs the story of a potential strong female counter to Eurydice, and the take on Hades is also confusing. Francis Winter plays the nasty, interesting man-slash-child, a play stand-in for the Lord of the Underworld. Here, he is a childish tormentor for Eurydice, who is basically like Geoffrey from Game of Thrones. Not inconsistent for Hades, or any of the Greek gods really, but it's a really strange and occasionally jarring take on the character. Overall, though, Eurydice is a must-see, especially if you love mythology and literature. Will's script raises a lot of interesting questions, and the play is especially moving. The stones wept when Orpheus played his music. After this play, the next cries you hear might be your own. Welcome back to the Arts Report. My name is Christine Kim. Ashley Park. Slim Shady. Uh, Jake Clark. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to our show today. Mm -hmm. Sharing Science does not have an episode this week, so what we'll be following will be a mixture. So they're just keeping science to themselves then? For this week they are, but they will be having uh, most likely an episode next week. Uh, So please do tune in for our show next week and hopefully Sharing Science's (laughs) show also uh, next Wednesday as well. As a reminder, our show starts at 5 p.m. on Wednesdays. And and speaking of good things happening on Wednesdays, in fact, this Wednesday at 7 o'clock there is a a double feature out of the norm, but possibly one of the weirdest double features I might have seen in a long time. You keep saying there's a lot of weird double features. There are a lot of weird double features of the norm. I enjoy the I enjoy the weirdness. <laughs> mm-hmm. like I get like the, the f- I, I mentioned that I couldn't relate to my peers because I was going too far back at one point. <laughs> when I tried, I got too far out. So there was that, you know. All right. But I and, and this is this is both. This is Un Chien Andalou, which is uh, the Andalusian dog, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, français is is ma français est très mal. <laughs> uh, uh, by Louis Bunuel, who was a very angry Spanish man, and Salvador Dali, who was a less, marginally less angry Spanish man. And the two of them actually grew to hate each other because uh, Bunuel was a com- was a communist, and uh, uh, Salvador Dali, how should I put this, was too fond of Franco. But um, they did make this very short movie targeting people that they really didn't like, wealthy French people. And Chien de Lou was made, and you, you, I, I, the reason I say this is because it's something that existed very specifically, and it's out of that context now, yeah, and it's yeah. still weird, which is really impressive. Because Chien de Lou is short, it's about 14 minutes long, mm-hmm. it's fully on YouTube, but you really want to see it in a theater, because this thing is the, is, uh, how can I put this, some of the weirdest stuff ever committed to celluloid. <laughs> like... It, that, that's the tagline. Yeah, like, um, um, unless you make a habit of dr- doing mushrooms and then going to Lady Gaga concerts with your good friend Crispin Glover, Shia Andalou <laughs> might be one of the weirdest <laughs> things you can possibly get your hands on. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to sum it up, but it's on today at 7 o'clock, and uh, it deserves to be seen. It's half an hour out of your day and in, in total for the 
the entire thing. After that is Apocalypse Now, though. So, yeah, if you're not suited for weirdness, there's that. And on the on the weekend, there is a uh, there's a uh, there's a Yakuza movie double feature, I believe. Actually, not Yakuza. One is uh, mm-hmm. actually neither of them are Yakuza. One is Triad Election. The other one's Old Boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry about that. When I think just of the, the, just the gangster movies. They are. They are. They are. They are uh, East Asian. They are Asian gangster movies. Yeah, East Asian gangster. Movies. Is yeah the the non the non Brolin Old Boy. And uh, on Sunday, there is a double feature of Thief with James Caan, which is a great monologue. I got $800 slacks. I got a gold watch. I'm a thief. And Drive, which where uh-huh. Ryan Gosling kind of, let's, let's just say he doesn't say much, but when he says something, despite him basically whispering it, you will hear it. <laughs> and it will stick with you. Yep. It's just, you know, pretty regular weekend at the norm, to be honest. Seriously. Like, drop another- on in. The ceiling can handle it. <laughs> And another reminder that the UBC Arts and Culture Night is happening right now. Oh so God, if any is. of you guys are interested in heading out to that, please go to the Museum of Anthropology. For more information on anything we've talked about on today's program, please feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and our Twitter accounts. Our Twitter handle is at CITR underscore Arts Report. Or you can find us on Facebook under the name The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Alternatively, you can also email us at arts at CITR.ca. Thank you so much yeah, for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. You have been listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM from Unceded Muscogee Territory and all of us here at the studio. Have a very Cheers. good evening. To play us out, I'm going to be playing a very short clip of Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction in light of the review that we did of Boom. So tune in again. Tune in again next week. Exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating. But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend, I you don't. Don't you understand what I'm trying to say? Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save. Will the world in a grave? 